I need um, three kids, three volunteers, three kid volunteers. Mr. Anderson, come on up. Oh, man, i got to choose between a couple... How about both? I'll take both of you. All right. All right. Great. Come on up here. All right, I'm going to offer you a little, little trade here, all right? Um, so I'm just learning you guys' names, so you're going to have to tell me your names again. Charlotte. Charlotte. Annabelle. Annabelle. All right. Charlotte and Annabelle. I'm going to start with you, Mr. Anderson. You like popcorn? Yeah. You do? All right. This is uh, skinny pop, sweet and salty. I'm going to offer you that. You want it? Sure. Sure? All right. You know what? How about this? I'm going to offer you the potential to trade. Okay? Would you rather have that or would you rather trade it for sweet and salty this size? Say yes. (laughs) Okay. All right, good, all right. Good decision. You guys like Coke? Sharp. Yeah? Yeah? Okay, all right, Charlotte, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this can of Coke, all right? Now, nah, you know what? Hang on. Should I keep that, or how about, I'd rather trade it for that. Did she want this so she can put Mentos in it to make it explode? That would be great. All right, so you want to trade. Like she can't do it. Oh, look at the eyes. She's like, wow, I'm sorry for what's going to happen at your house later today, Jeff. Uh, so, all right. And we'll go with you. Annabelle. Yes, okay. You like Hershey's? Yeah. All right. So you want to trade? Do you think I got a trade for you too? You think so? Yeah, okay. Let me see what I got back here. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, okay. No, I'm kidding. That was bad, wasn't it? No, okay, here we go. How about, oh, <laughs> yeah? You'd rather have this one than that one? Are you sure? Why? Because it's bigger. Smart girl. It's bigger, right? Okay, so, so you guys all trade it up. Uh, <laughs> You got, why? Why, why? Why would you trade up? Because I like popcorn a lot. And, and is there more in here? Yes. So is, would, you, would it be safe? To, is this better than that? Because it's bigger? Say yes. Man, you're not Mr. Anderson. Um, better, right? Would, yeah, yes, better because I can make things blow up. Okay, good. And you traded that because it's, Why? Because you like chocolate. So why would you want that one instead of this one? Because it's bigger. And that makes it better? Better. Yes, that, that is our key word today, is better. So the book of Hebrews that we're going to study today is about the same thing, about making a choice. You can have this, or you can have what is better. And what the writer of the Hebrews is doing is presenting to us Jesus as being better than anything else they'd had before, all right? And what he's going to challenge us to do is always choose the bigger Hershey bar. The bigger Hershey bar represents Jesus. Or the bigger pack of Mentos to make explosions. I want to be at your house today. That's going to be a good time. Right. You guys, give me a hand. They helped me out. All right.
You guys can have, you can keep that. You can keep it. You can, yeah, go blow things up. All right. Um, I forgot. I made a big mistake for service because I, I had that, and um, and I'm standing up here and I go right before we started. I'm like, I forgot. I have to do this twice, and I only had one of each of the big ones, so I had to give IOUs to all the kids in the first service. So Noah Visser will not let me forget that I owe him a large uh, a large candy bar. The writer of the book of Hebrews is presenting to his audience a choice. Because what they wanted, what they were thinking about, they were thinking about choosing poorly. They were thinking about choosing less than the best. The writer of the book of Hebrews is, is, is telling us and telling his readers that you, you don't get better than Jesus. Jesus is superior to everything. And that was a challenge they needed to hear because there was this temptation for whatever reason by these first century believers to go back to the old ways of Judaism. We believe that the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians who had received Christ as Savior, or who at least articulated faith with their lips, but now were being tempted to revert back to the old ways of Judaism. They had been weaned from Judaism, but they are being tempted to go back. So the writer to the book of Hebrews is writing to prevent prevent them from, from, from doing that. From turning back to the old ways. Maintain your confession. And we live in a, in a day today uh, amongst even Christianity where it's becoming almost cool to, to come out and deconstruct your Christianity. That's, that's the word that's being used. People like uh, Josh Harris or, or Kevin Max or Jonathan Steingart, who is the lead singer of the band Hawk Nelson, coming out and saying, I don't believe this anymore. It's not relevant anymore. It's too strict. It's too narrow I am not a follower of Jesus Christ anymore. The book of Hebrews screams at them that that is a foolish choice. That if you choose anything else other than Jesus, you are settling for less than. So while we sit here today in this auditorium, we uh, probably aren't going to be tempted in any way over the next week or year or whatever to return to Judaism. Probably no one in here has thought long and hard about maybe I should start sacrificing sheep in my backyard again. Um, but here's the question I have for you. What are you tempted to return to? What things have you turned your back on for the sake of following Jesus that as you follow Jesus and run into the struggles and challenges that sometimes come with that, are, are, have you been tempted to say, you know what, I, maybe it's easier to go the other way. Maybe it's easier to go back like some of these other believers uh, or people who've called themselves believers, have done in our, in our world and in our culture today. The book of Hebrews speaks to you today. You will have heard the message of Hebrews if you stand in awe of Jesus and reject anything else that competes for your allegiance. So again, I ask you, is there anything you're tempted to return to? I can promise you today, and the writer of the book of Hebrews would scream at you, that it does not compare to Jesus. 
Paul provides an excellent example of someone who got the message of Hebrews. Not saying that he had access to it or read, but but when you see Hebrew or Paul's testimony, he, he understood this. When when he talks about his own Judaism and his own growing up, right? A Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the pinnacle. He had attained all you could attain in Judaism, and he said, I consider it all as rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. And then he bridges, really, bridges the gap for us because he says, beyond that, he goes, as a matter of fact, not only that, but I consider anything, anything that competes for Jesus Christ to be rubbish. I lay it all behind me. Mark Dever, a pastor and theologian, writes this, Hebrews is kind of like a spiritual consumer reports. Almost like a spiritual consumer reports, because the writer of Hebrews is saying, here's Jesus, and here's all the ways Jesus is better, and here's that other product, and here's all the ways that it is inferior. And if you are wise, you will choose the better of the two. You will choose to maintain your allegiance to Jesus Christ. That said, I do want to be clear, Hebrews is not an attack on Old Testament religion. The Old Testament and the Old Covenant is foundational to the New Covenant and foundational to the message of Hebrews, okay? So he's not saying that the law was bad. Paul is very clear of that in the book of Romans. But it served its time. There's a difference between bad and obsolete. And what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying to us is that the old ways are obsolete. It's not worth going back to them. Don't do it. Okay? So here's some things that the writer to the book of Hebrews wants us to embrace, wants us to believe. You must believe that Jesus and the new covenant are superior. You must believe that Jesus and the new covenant are superior. Let me read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 for you. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Jesus is superior. So the first thing we come through here in Hebrews is one, uh, verses 1 through 4. And it's kind of a summary of the entire book. In Jesus, everything is better. The covenant he inaugurated is superior to any that came before. His priesthood is better than Levi's. The sacrifice he offered is better than those offered under the Mosaic Code. Everything in the Old Testament, while effective and important for Israel at the time, ultimately pointed to Jesus and anticipated him. Okay? So I want you to understand something here at the beginning. Uh, this was a painful book to prep and then preach. I said to Kathy about Wednesday, I said, I have to literally delete half of what I've written <laughs> Because it is so rich and there's so much stuff here. And I went from like six, seven pages down to four. So I want you to understand, as I think you do by now in this, this survey that we're doing, that we're hitting the high points. I'm going to throw a lot of scripture up on the screen today. We're not going to be able to read it all. But I want you to at least see that I'm not making this stuff up, okay? And, um, and I tried to give you all the relevant passages there in your notes so you can go back. All right, so there's my little caveat for uh, the book of Hebrews. You must believe that Jesus and the new covenant are better. 
First of all, we have this then, right here in 1, verses 1 through 4. Jesus is the superior revelation of God, right? In the old days, many times, many ways, God spoke to his people through the prophets and through visions. That was good. But it was very limited, very selective who would get those revelations. And, then, and you'd go periods of time without hearing from God. But in these days, God has spoken to us. And in the Greek, I love it, it's in huios, in son. It's, literally, it's almost saying like it's, like, like it's a language. He has spoken to us in son, like in Spanish or French. God has spoken to us in son. Jesus is the language, is the expression of God, right? John gets this. Jesus is the word, Right? The expression, the, the exact revelation of God. And this is a superior revelation. I have, I have pictures there of, of uh, Brazil. And they're too small, sorry. Um, but uh, the, the bottom one there, that's the picture of the chapel there in Brazil. And the, the top one is a picture of one of the, the meal times. And, and uh, for anyone who's gone on a trip or a missions trip or that type of thing, one of the most frustrating things is coming back and trying to explain it to other people. Because you can't. And we can show you pictures, we can have the kids come up and give, give uh, testimonies, we can have Dan Cook come up and talk about it, and, and you can get a good sense of Brazil and of the ministry there. But it's not until you go and, and you interact with the people and, and, and you feel the place and you, you smell the place and, and you experience the joy, like that's when you're like, oh, oh I get it now. I knew about it, but now, I, and, it, and that's exactly, that's what Jesus does. It, we know about God and, and, and in a powerful and effective way through the Old Testament, but when we see Jesus, right, John writes this, like, we saw him, we touched him, we beheld the glory of God. And now we, sitting here as the New Testament church, get, get to read, they, they recorded this in the Gospels, and we get to know God through the person and work of Jesus. So, he jumps in right away. Jesus is the superior revelation of God. Right? This speaks to those who want to walk away from him. This speaks to agnosticism. This speaks to those who think God is too far away to know, care, or understand. No. Jesus came near so that we can know God. Right? Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior to angels. So again, the writer of Hebrews, all the ways Jesus is better, right? The spiritual consumer reports. Here's another way, Hebrews 1.5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, to none of them. He never has said that to an angel. Because an angel is not equal with the son. And what the writer of Hebrews has done right here at the beginning in, in talking about angels... And, um, well, I'm going to head of myself. Let me go here just for a minute. Uh, Jesus is superior to Moses. And uh, we see this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, where, where he, he says, Moses receives honor because Moses is the house. But Jesus is the architect and builder of the house. So while you can look at a house and say, well, that's a beautiful house, and you can give that house honor, the one who deserves more honor is the one who built it and designed it. And he, he says, Moses is the house, Jesus is the designer and builder. Jesus is superior to Moses. He goes on and talks about this house metaphor, and he says, Moses was a faithful servant, right? He, he, he's not cutting on Moses. Moses was a faithful servant. The Pentateuch ends by saying, since, since Moses died, there's never been a prophet like him in Israel. Moses was, was the prophet par excellence before God. And so he's being honored here in Hebrews. And, but he's saying, you know what? Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Jesus 
is in that same house, but Jesus is the son, is the faithful son. And the son is always more honored than the servant. So right away, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's taking two figures, angelic beings who who were held in high esteem. Uh, If we had time to look in Hebrews, we'd see that they they understood that the law was mediated through angels, and and, uh, angels were great beings. Every time one appeared throughout Scripture, you had to say, fear not. There was a reason for that. Okay, These were grand beings, and, and so the Israelites held them in high esteem. And then you're talking about Moses. And the writer of Hebrews is going, yeah, Jesus is better than both of those. Right? He's taken like the pinnacle of, of, of what they would, would hold dear and say it's even better. It'd be like me telling you like a, a particular college football program is, 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 has surpassed the University of Alabama. But right away, for those of you who follow college football, you'd be like, whoa, that must be a pretty good football program uh, because you don't get any better than Alabama. You, know, you could flip the thing around and go, you know, this, this organization's worse than the Lions. Uh, you know, you'd be like, oh, okay, I get it. Like, really bad. You're like, yeah, really bad. That, that's, that's what he's doing. He's like, angels, Moses, like, better. And you're like, whoa. Like, wow. Right? Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is the superior high priest. And this is where Hebrews camps and spends a lot of its time. And I wish we had time to unpack this, but... But we don't, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 here talks about Jesus being a high priest who passed through the heavens. He knows what it's like to be us. He can represent us to God because he experienced our weakness and our pain and our struggle. We have a high priest who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. He's the better high priest. He never sinned. Because of him and his ministry, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence this is one that we really don't have time to unpack, and it's so crucial in, in Hebrews. Uh, Jesus' priesthood is a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. And I hate to just leave that there and not go greater, but let me at least give you this passage. This is what Hebrews says about Melchizedek. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Basically what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is that the Levitical order, the Aaronic priesthood, was not sufficient to deal with sin. Something greater was needed. And so it talks about this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, who appears in Genesis, a priest. His name means king of righteousness, uh, king in Salem. He was uh, the king in Salem, Jerusalem, in the Old Testament time, that citadel. And he comes out, and Abraham meets him on the way back, and Abraham bows before him and offers a tithe. So right away, here's another figure, Abraham, bowing before Melchizedek. Melchizedek has no genealogy, no record of his birth, no record of his death. In Genesis, that's a big deal, because everyone in Genesis gets a genealogy except Melchizedek. Why? Because Melchizedek's Melchizedek's purpose is always to serve as a type, as a prefiguring of of Christ. This is a priesthood that existed over and above the Levitical priesthood. No record of his death. He died, but no record of it. So, in a way, it's like his priesthood continues. And and, and again, it's a typology of Christ. There needed to be a greater priesthood than Aaron. Jesus comes along, and he fills up what Melchizedek represented as a priesthood that has no ending. A priesthood without a beginning. This is the needed priesthood because the Levitical priesthood is not sufficient. Why do you want to go back to that? 
Why do you want to go back to something less than Jesus? Jesus' priesthood is permanence. Um, now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing the office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to completely save those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to make intercession for them, right? Human priests died. They could not continue their ministry. They had to be replaced over and over and over again. Jesus, the ultimate high priest, has never died. He's able to continue his ministry powerfully and effectively. It's permanent. His priesthood is able to purify, save completely, and fully meet the needs of humanity. Christ's priesthood is held by a priest who is holy, blameless, pure, and set apart. Hebrews talks about how the priests, before they could go in and, and, and offer sacrifice on, on, on Matt's behalf, had to go in first and offer sacrifice on his own behalf because he was a sinner. Right? So I had to go take care of my sin, and then I can represent Matt to God. And, and, and that was an effective priesthood, but it was very limited and unable to completely deal with the problem. That's why Jesus is better, because Jesus was perfect, did not have to deal with his own sin, and get it ultimately deal with the sin and guilt of all of humanity forever. No earthly priest could do that. Probably no one in this room has had the experience that I have had of trying to call like either AT&T or Comcast or Xfinity and deal with a problem. It's, you're laughing. You know. You know, right? You know how this goes. Um, Years ago, we were having this really bad problem. It was a billing issue, and it was when AT&T was merging with DirecTV, and, and they messed up our bill. And here was the first, we call AT&T, and you, and you get that first level of support, right? And, and they're like, well, we can see it, but we can't see the uh, DirecTV part yet because the merger's so new, we can't see that part, so we can't help you. So call DirecTV, okay? Call DirecTV. Yeah, um, you know, we, the merger just happened, so... You know, we can't really help you with the AT&T side because we can't see that side of the problem. And this one, and finally, I'm like, okay. I'm like, is there anybody who can see both sides of the problem? Oh, yeah, that person's like in Arizona. I'm like, I want that guy. Get me the guy in Arizona who can see DirecTV and AT&T. And eventually they did. And I'm like, oh, they were able to solve my problem. That, that illustrates this perfectly. The, 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 the Old Testament priests were kind of like that first person you call, and they're like, I can help you, but ultimately I can't solve your problem. I want Jesus. I want Jesus because Jesus is the guy who, who stands at the top of it and he can deal with the issue. The earthly priests were very limited in their ability. Why would I go back to something less than when I read the Consumer Report? Right? Jesus mediates a superior covenant through a superior ministry. Jesus mediates a superior covenant through a superior ministry. This is one, too, that you could just spend several weeks unpacking. And this is really the gist. You're introduced to this in chapter 2. But really the gist of chapters 8, 9, and 10, it's, it's, it's really a, a lot of the meat that you're going to read there in 9 and 10 in the Hebrews. But here's two ways that Jesus' ministry is better. Number one, Jesus is completely and fully God. Right? We read that in chapter 1. The exact representation of God. He's God. And he came here. He came here, and he was weak, and he struggled. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he, he offered cries and, and groanings. Right? He shared in our humanity so that by his death, 
he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is a better ministry. Earthly priests couldn't do this. But Jesus did. He breaks the power of sin and death. This is a better ministry. This is God becoming human. And later on in this chapter, so much so where it says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus becomes the true and best elder brother. He calls me family? What? He calls me family, the Son of God, and allows me to share. Human priests couldn't do this. I didn't become part of their family. I didn't become part of the priesthood. I couldn't because their power is limited. But Jesus does that. His ministry is better. The other way his, his ministry is better, and again, this is a huge thing in Hebrews, is it, it unpacks how the, the Levitical priests, they functioned in the earthly tabernacle. And it uses the terminology of, of shadow or copy. It, it, it was effective for its time, but it was just a copy. It wasn't the true tabernacle. It wasn't the true sanctuary of God. But this is where the priest would go and, and, and do his work, but it was limited because it was physical. It was limited because it was a shadow. But it says the true high priest, Jesus, he accomplished his work in the heavenly sanctuary in the spiritual realm. Human priests couldn't go there, but Jesus goes there. And because Jesus did his work of atonement, bringing his blood of atonement into the heavenly sanctuary, now sin is able to be dealt with. Now guilt is able to be dealt with. This is a better ministry than the Levitical priesthood. Why would you want to go back to the Levitical priesthood? And the cool thing about that is is this. Let us come boldly, before the throne of grace, right? I couldn't, nor would I have ever been allowed to walk into that holy of holies in the tabernacle or the temple. One man, one time a year, could do that after going through all of these things. Jesus accomplishes his work in the heavenly sanctuary, and then the invitation comes, now let you, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. I couldn't walk into that one, but this high priest ministry was so effective, I can walk into that one? It's crazy. But that's what Jesus accomplishes because his ministry is better. I can follow him. I can draw near to the throne of grace. I have access to God. Wow. Jesus' blood and sacrifice is superior to the blood of animal sacrifices. It does not need to be offered over and over again. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all, Right? Eternality. By his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. And it could only deal with the surface. How much more the blood of God, the blood of Jesus, sanctify us and purify us? His blood is better. His blood takes away sin it makes us perfect and produces true holiness. 
His blood is able to cleanse guilt. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, it talks about how the old way could not cleanse guilt. And almost what we're presented with was that in the Old Testament, and I think I get this, I think I understand it, that, that, that people would have almost lived with a constant cognitive dissonance. Like, like, okay, I just offered my sacrifices, but I come back the next day and I sin again, and I have to start thinking about the next time I have to offer my sacrifice. I never can feel completely finished and and clean and pure and guiltless before God because I have to keep going back over and over and over again. But Jesus says, not anymore. Now you're free. You don't have to feel guilt anymore. And I know that speaks to some of you. The better sacrifice of Jesus, you don't have to feel guilt anymore. If you've given that to Jesus, because he's the better and true high priest who can truly deal with our sin. And so we come there in chapter 12, I'm sorry, in chapter 8, verse 13, and it says, it, says, it uses the word, the old way, the old side, it's obsolete. It's obsolete. You all know what this is? Logan Brewster, do you know what this is? No. Eh? Right? Tim Simon, you know what this is? Because you're old, man. <laughs> right? A floppy disk. This one right here, it's a Sony. High density. It holds 1.44 megabytes. What's even 1.4 megabytes anymore, Luke? Like nothing, right? Someone, you can have, someone can have this afterwards. You want to come up and have this, right? Like, no, it's worthless, right? I think I'm like, just my music on iTunes, it's like 600 gig. It would be like, someone do the math for me at some point, right? There's like 80,000 of these, I don't know obsolete. No one uses it. You can't even buy a computer that you can put one of these into anymore. Obsolete. What are you tempted to go back to? What are you tempted to go back to? Because if it's anything other than Jesus, what you're doing is you're picking this. The Old Testament law is the example here in Hebrews. Take the principle. Anything other than Jesus this, when instead you could have a brand new Mac. Right? Luke's like, yes, you said it. Obsolete. Jesus' blood is better. Jesus is the better high priest. So what do we do with this? What does the writer of the Hebrews do with this? There's a foresight warning. There's a, a warning cycle. Four times. Warning cycle through Hebrews. He gives us theology, issues a warning. Gives us more theology, issues a warning. More theology at four times, and they almost grow in severity as the warnings go. You must heed the warnings of falling away. There's a choice. There's a choice. But the writer of Hebrews wants to be very clear about one thing. If you choose something other than Jesus, it doesn't turn out well. There's warnings. The first one is, is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Warning about neglecting the superior, right? Right away we're told that Jesus is su- su- superior. Um, savior, better than angels, better than Moses, it's superior revelation. And so then here's the first warning. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? 
It's a picture of Zach and I uh, canoeing. Uh, we were going fishing out on Platte Lake up north. And this was, I chose this picture on prayer. It was a beautiful day. No wind. The lake was completely still. So Jack, Zach and I just go out there, and uh, we're having a good old time fishing. And finally, I, like, I look straight up where the house is supposed to be, where we're staying at, and I'm like, wait, I don't recognize. I'm like, oh my word, Zach. <laughs> like, look where we're at. And, and, and there was no wind or nothing, but the current just kind of, and we weren't paying any attention. And before we knew it, we're done. That's the, terminolo- that's the terminology he uses, drift. Something that can happen without you even knowing it. Don't drift away, because if you neglect such this, this great salvation, it, it's not worth it. We have this faulty concept, and it is faulty. Sometimes we think of the Old Testament as the, like the, the, the covenant of judgment. God was mean in the Old Testament. <laughs> and, but he's a God of grace and mercy and love in the New Testament. And that's problematic thinking on several ways. But if there is anything to that way of thinking, the, the writer of Hebrews almost flips it on its head and says, you think God brought judgment for rejection of his truth in the Old Testament? How much more? If you spit on the blood of Jesus. There's nothing that awaits you but fiery judgment, the writer of Hebrews says. Don't neglect this. There's a warning against unbelief and rebellion. We don't have time to unpack this one, but it uses a very well-known example. Jewish people would have been very clued into this about the rebellion when they're about to enter the promised land. And they got the bad report back from the spies and they turned away and, and the consequence was they weren't able to enter the rest of the promised land and all the blessings God had, they were sent back into the wilderness to wander. And the writer of the Hebrews uses that illustration and he says, if you hear God's voice today, like they did, don't, don't turn your back on it. Don't harden your heart to it. Because the warning still stands. You will not enter God's rest. Today if you hear his voice, Warning against lack of growth and falling away. Warning against lack of growth and falling away. I think I skipped one there. Warning against lack of growth and falling away. This is in chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. We have much to say about this, things he's talked about, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. This is just laziness. This isn't even a, a like a, a, a turning away, but there's a warning here about like just becoming lazy and lax and not pursuing God anymore is every bit as dangerous. Don't put yourself in that position either. So it's just hard to do my devotions. It's hard to spend time with God every day. You're getting lazy. Hebrews says you need to be warned. That, that's a bad place to go. The bad thing to get, to get lazy in your pursuit of, of God. And the warnings grow serious. Like I said, in chapter 6, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. That's heavy. These warnings were to people who had been exposed to truth. Right? 
The example of the people in the wilderness. These are people who knew. These are people who saw God work. They saw the, the, the plagues in Egypt. They saw the Red Sea split open. They knew what God could do. They knew God's, God's power, and they still rebelled. That's the people that, that Hebrews is talking to. You've heard the truth. And to sit there after hearing the truth and say, nope, I'm choosing something else. The writer of the Hebrews says that's a bad place to be. And he warns about never coming back. Now listen, right? We believe the promises of God are true. And in chapter 6, I think the writer of the Hebrews acknowledges the tension here. He said, listen, the promises of God are true. And he even says to the readers, he says, I, I know you have a sincere faith. I've seen it. Okay? We believe that, that once we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, okay, we're, we're sealed. Scripture is also very clear. Revelation and other places that those who turn their backs, those who don't persevere to the end, there's heavy warnings. And here in Hebrews, he says, probably not coming back. And you try to wrestle with that, that looks like. And here's what I can say. I say it's a serious thing to turn your back on Christ and reject him. And Hebrews warns us about that. I think Phil Yancey offered a great response one time. I'm almost fr- I get frustrated when I read stuff like this because I'm like, why can't I think this, this quickly? <laughs> he, uh, someone asked him, someone said to him one time, they're like, I'm, I'm going to commit adultery. I claimed to be a Christian. He told Philip Yancey this. They were eating lunch together. He said, I'm going to commit adultery. I'm, I'm going to cheat on my wife. Here's the question I have for you, Phil. Can God forgive me for that? Yancey's like, do this. I'm going to intentionally sin, and then I'm just going to ask God for forgiveness at some point when I feel sorry about it. And Yancey's answer, I think, was brilliant. Yancey said, you know what? He said, if you intentionally commit this sin against God... It's not a question of whether or not God's great mercy can cover that and forgive you. The question is, if you intentionally turn your back on God, will you ever want to come back? Will you ever have the will to repent? Because every time we harden our hearts and turn against God, there's a little part of us that dies, I think. And our hearts become colder and colder and colder and harder and harder and harder. And it's not a matter of whether God will come take us back. It's just a matter of we, we won't want to go back. We won't be willing to humble ourselves. And I think that that's what this is getting at here in the book of Hebrews, the warnings. It's a big deal. Respond. um, Must respond by persevering. Hold fast to what is better. Allow the superiority of Christ to motivate you to persevere. Right? This was Hebrews 10. This is um, the... the, um, Hebrews 11, right? All these great figures of the faith. Uh, Jack, thanks Jack for helping me in my sermon today by reading this. Uh, um, all these great saints of old, they persevered. They held fast to the end. They maintained a future perspective. The scripture reading earlier um, in, in the service, we've come to Mount Zion, Right? These Old Testament saints, what kept them faithful, what kept them enduring, and if you read chapter 11, it's through some pretty bad stuff, being sawn in two, being, being persecuted, being spit on, being cast out. Why did they maintain their commitment to God? Because they were looking for a different city. Their hope wasn't here. They had a future perspective 
something greater. So be encouraged by the faith and examples of those who came before, right? Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12 just transitions to, if you're ever tempted to turn your back on Christ and go back because it's too hard. It's too hard to keep living as a Christian in this world. It's too hard to to stay faithful and I just can't do it anymore. It says, no, 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 no. Don't even just look to the people in 11, but look to the author and finisher of your faith. Chapter 12. Look to Jesus. Endured the shame and the suffering of the cross, hung naked on a Roman cross, dying, feasting uh, the rejection of his father. Yeah, you want to talk about hard. But why did he endure? Because he saw the joy on the other side. He saw the joy on the other side. Why would these people want to turn back? I think some of the reasons could resonate with us. I got this from Douglas Moo and D.A. Carson. Three reasons and then we'll be done. Tired of bearing the shame of living outside the mainstream of their cultural heritage. Maybe they're tired of bearing the shame of living outside the mainstream of their cultural heritage. In chapter 13, verse 13, it talks about Jesus being shamed. It talks about following Jesus, going outside of the city. And the interpreters of Hebrews say, well, what, that, what that represents is it's, it's outside the cities where you go when you're not accepted. <laughs> and maybe that pressure is causing some of you to want to turn your back on Christ. This is getting too hard. I'm tired of, of being made fun of. I'm tired of living outside of mainstream culture. Maybe you're enticed by the novel. New and exciting teachings. In chapter 13, verse 9, it, it talks about that. These new exciting teachings that uh, uh, become more appealing than, than, than the faith that had been handed down to them. Or maybe it was just plain fear. If I keep following Christ, it's going to cost me something. All right? At this time, in the Roman Empire, Judaism was accepted. Judaism was an accepted and approved religion in the Roman Empire. Christianity was not so hey, if we just look a little more Jewish, cast off the Christianity thing, maybe Rome will leave us alone. Maybe it's fear that causes us to want to turn back. The problem with any of these reasons is that Christ and his priestly work are so relativized that they are effectively denied. And apostasy is only a whisker away. The book closes... We don't have time to unpack this in chapter 12 and 13 then. We're saying, okay, then what does it look like to stay faithful? What does the faithful like look like? And it's really practical. Let me just read this to you. We'll be done. Chapter 12, verse 14. Make an effort to live at peace with uh, everyone. Make an effort to live at peace with everyone. Chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue holiness. Chapter 12, verse 15. Don't allow bitterness to take hold because it defiles many. Chapter 12, verse 16, avoid sexual immorality. Chapter 13, verse 1, keep on loving as brothers and sisters. Chapter 13, verse 2, show hospitality to strangers. Chapter 13, verse 3, remember those in prison. Chapter 13, verse 4, honor marriage and keep sexuality in its proper place. Chapter 13, verses 5 through 6, do not love money and be content. Why, by the way, because you have the superior thing in Christ, right? Chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. Be willing to go outside the city and live with Christ in the face of the world's disapproval because this ain't our city. The word ain't in, isn't in there, but I just I thought it was good. So. Chapter 13, 15, and 16. Offer the sacrifices of the new covenant. Hebrews, by the way, does tell us to offer sacrifices. 
But in the new covenant, they look very different. The two sacrifices that it says to offer are goodness to others and sacrifices of praise. That's what the life under the new covenant looks like. And lastly, remember your leaders in the church. Submit to their authority and make their job a joy because they are charged with keeping watch over your soul. Griffin, come on up. I want to encourage you. Don't go back to anything. Whatever you're tempted to go back to today, don't go back to it. Stay faithful. Keep pursuing Jesus. Over and over and over and over again every single day. I referred to my World War II book last time I preached. And because it's 8,000 pages long, I'm still reading it. But one of these parts they're talking about is um, the code breaking that took place in Honolulu that really helped the U.S. forces attain victory in the Pacific. They were able to break the Japanese code, but it wasn't easy. And there, one of the guys was talking about the process. It says, so he stared, and he stared, and he stared, looking at letters and digits. And he says, if you look at it long enough, you'll start to see something. And if the idea was testable, then you, you tested your hypothesis. And, the, and, you, and, and if it failed, you went back and you stared and you stared and you stared again. And they quote this guy, um, Dyer. A lot of it is, I'm convinced, done by the subconscious. Sometimes when people ask me how I can solve these messages, I say, well, you sit there and you stare at it until you see what it says. And then you put it down. You look. It depends on what kind of thing you're dealing with. But you look at it. Until you see something that attracts your attention, your curiosity. Maybe it doesn't suggest anything at all. You go on to something else. The next day you come back and look at it again. He said it's all a matter of persistence. Just sticking with this thing day after day after day after day after day. I stare at it. 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 And eventually I see it. The writer of the Hebrews is saying, you stick with Jesus because he's better. Day after day after day after day after day, you keep looking at Jesus. You stare at him, you stare at him, you stare at him, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.